What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist from Toronto, Canada, but hanging out in Chicago this weekend, and I'm leading the toxic femininity charge this week. On this week's panel, we have the amazing Dr. Brenda Elsie, president of the Feminist for Leo Messi fan club, undeniable genius, and associate professor of history at Hofstra University in Long Island, New York and the indomitable and brilliant Libsy Gibbs with the most beautiful laugh and mightiest pen, and also creator of the Power Plays newsletter, sign up at powerplays.news. She's in D.C. Before I start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2, and as high as you want to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. And with the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. And we have recently begun a vlog, which is absolutely riveting. So far, we have been able to solidify funding for proper editing and transcripts and our social media guru, Shelby, but we are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. And Burn It All Down is a labor of love and we all believe in this podcast, but having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing. And we are so grateful for your support and happy that our flamethrowing family is growing. We have a kick-ass show for you this week. We will get into a conversation about the WNBA collective bargaining agreement. Jessica has an interview with ultra cyclist Emily Chapel, and then we will have a discussion about women in boxing and maybe some particular issues. But before we get started, let's have a quick conversation about the NWSL draft. Lindsay, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was at the draft over the weekend. Oh, not the weekend. I don't know what day it is. <laughs> it was last week. <laughs> uh, sorry, I've lost my voice a little bit, as you all can tell. Uh, but it was wild. It was so dramatic. In the first round, every single team ended up switching draft picks. I was there live and could not keep track with anything that was going on. But ultimately, Sophia Smith ended up who left early. I'm so fascinated by players leaving college early. Brenda mm -hmm. and I argued over this a little bit mm -hmm. <laughs> over the weekend in Baltimore. And so she was picked number one overall by the Portland Thorns. Yay! And, and then we had a big trade involving Mallory Pugh. So Mallory Pugh is now with the Sky Blue FC. Of course, if you listened to last week's episode, we had an interview with Sky Blue GM Elise Hugh, and she made so many big moves <laughs> at the 
this draft. And so it's really big that Mal has left um, the Washington Spirit and is now with the with the Sky Blue. So I got to say, it was amazing to be there and to see all these dreams, you know, coming true. I mean, it's just it's a you know it's a cheesy day. It's a fun day, but it was also just dramatic. What did you all think? <laughs> Well, I watched a little bit. I learned about allocation money. Oh, sorry. Oh, oh I <laughs> just um, I was just following mostly Portland because, like, I love that team so much, and I really appreciated. By the way, Lindsay, you tweeting out because your tweeting was fantastic. You identifying the Canadians because that always makes me feel happy. But um, even Sophia Smith's her speech was, I thought, really, really beautiful. Like, you know, when she addressed the audience and talked about her journey and what, you know, was coming. Like I just thought, and I thought her thanking the situation, the context around her was also really important. I mean, she's very, very well-spoken, very articulate. So I was really fascinated by Sophia Smith and, you know, her, when she addressed the crowd and how wonderful that speech was, she was very articulate. I'm very excited she's going to Portland, but I was a bit stressed out during the day because it was, I was really difficult to follow because all my favorite soccer writers were basically like, we don't understand the nature of what's happening right now. And, you know, Jonathan Tannenwald, who I appreciate his writing, he was like, I don't even understand what just happened. So it was difficult on the receiving end to try to follow along, but I wasn't watching it live. I was following on Twitter. Brenda, what did you think? I mean, I I thought it was fascinating. I learned what allocation money is, I guess, which is buying money with money. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> so the owners were literally making up allocation money rules as we went. Which yeah, by the way, it's it was really crazy. complicated, but it has to do with the caps and trying to, you know, get more capacity within your capped amount by buying and trading for money. Trading money. So it's it was really it's really bizarre. I imagine that the league going forward is gonna review that because it's just like simply was was felt really weird to me but anyway yeah Sophia Smith now at the Portland Thorns the biggest news probably that the 21 year old Mallory Pugh from Washington to Sky Blue trade right so all the fans there were were saying now we're Sky Pugh which was really cute lent itself oh Um, that's so great (laughs) that I know everyone's sort of like saying that the Thorns I kind of think Sky Blue comes out ahead in this because Mallory Pugh is gonna I mean even if she needs a year or two more of development she's already hitting the ground running she's a more developed player Sophia Smith is great I know I'm gonna get a lot of shit about this but she's she's young she's young she's really young and she looks young and she's competed against young people she's played for the U17 team she's now called up to the senior women's team training camp this year I still think she could have used a year or two more at Stanford, but we'll see. Well, we'll definitely see. This isn't a, were any of the draft nominees, as anyone know, going to the uh, Olympic camp? Mm. For the U.S.? Yes. Good question. I don't know. No, none of them are on the team. Okay. None of them are on the qualifying team. Okay. So because the team hasn't been yet announced, but they're going to camp to the to do all these qualifiers. And I think the roster will be announced. No, no, the qualifying team has been announced. The team that's going to qualify next week has been announced and none of them are on that. None of them are on that. Yeah, no, because the actual team for Tokyo hasn't been announced yet. That'll be announced. Right, because they haven't even qualified haven't yet. Even, yeah. I'm pretty sure they'll I'm pretty don't they get don't they I'm pretty get, sure they'll make it, yeah. but it would be kind of tacky to do that before they qualify. <laughs> 
anyways, we have so much to look forward to. And Lindsay, again, you had a great interview with Elise LeHue and just, you know, in Power Plays and on the show, like just fantastic. You know, it's really amazing to see how that club is done. And, you know, bravo for all your work on that, too. So moving on, Brenda, can you start us off with our first segment, please? Sure. So this week, really, really big news in women's sports. Basically, the WNBA Players Association signed a seven-year collective bargaining agreement with the league. The players had opted out of their agreement early, which some people said was risky, but paid off big time this week. And I just want to read a little bit from the Players Association president and LA Sparks player, Neka Agwumike, said in her Players Tribune piece that was written over a year ago when they did opt out, quote, does opting out mean we take the CBA lightly? Not at all, and just the opposite. We take this seriously, so seriously, we're not just opting out of this agreement. We've also given rigorous consideration to the agreement we want in its place. This was not an easy decision for any of us, and it came out of a whole lot of research and conversation and soul-searching and thought. She goes on to say, we're opting out because women's basketball potential is infinite. We're opting out because there's still a lot more work to be done, and we're betting on ourselves to do it. End of quote. So what happened? Just the basics, and I know Lynn has written on this as well for Power Plays, which was excellent, and Shereen's got a whole bunch to say, but basics, WNBA salary cap rises 30% from a million to 1.3 million. The CBA will include policies about domestic intimate partner violence. I think the details on that are still to be worked out. Benefits, fully paid maternity leave, a new annual child care stipend of $5,000, accommodations for nursing mothers, and housing stipulations as well for players with children. Also, veteran players, and I don't know what that meant exactly. Maybe, Linz, you could you could help or, or Shireen with the details. But veteran players, as they're called, are eligible for up to $60,000 in reimbursed expenses related to adoption, surrogacy, fertility, etc. So... I'm just um, going to leave it there. I'm not sure if I missed any of the nuts and bolts, but that's what I got from it. And it was just a really fabulous to see. Yeah, I think this was a really huge deal for women's sports. And I honestly went, first of all, we should say the entire collective bargaining agreement itself has not been released yet. So I still have a lot of questions about some of these nuts and bolts and you know, it's going to be fascinating when we get the entire document to really dive into it and see, you know, how this is exactly structured. But one of the big things is that this CBA, it's, there's two kind of types of funding that we're talking about for the players. One is the direct salaries, which did increase, albeit not as much as, you know, some people would have liked. You know, the top player salaries did almost double. They increased by 80%. But when you're on the lower end, you know, it maybe went from, you know, 50000 to 60000 you know, so it wasn't as drastic, but still significant. So that is one thing that happened. You know, there's going to be 300,000 more dollars in the salary cap that can directly go to player salaries now for each team. And that'll grow by 3% each of the eight years of the contract. 
But there's also this money that they are pretty much generating themselves via new marketing and player development and promotional initiatives. So this is where it gets very creative and I think very exciting for the future of the league because the complaint always is that nobody is doing enough to promote the league. All these players go overseas and they don't, you know, they're not here during the off season. And when they are here, the WNBA and NBA don't do a good job of marketing them. They're not visible. Um, We're not seeing them. And so the league is really out of sight, out of mind for six full months, which is huge. But now the league has to spend a minimum of $1.6 million a year directly to the player. So that's a minimum. So they have to spend that much money to help market and promote during the off season. So that is money that will go directly into players' pockets. I think the cap is $250,000 per player for them to work for the league during the off season to do, you know, marketing and, you know, promotional activities. Okay, so each off season now the league has to spend a minimum of 1.6 million dollars and give that directly to the players to help the league promote the league itself during the off season so this will a so each player it seems like can get up to the max per player is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars so obviously only the elite players will get two hundred and fifty thousand dollars but that will help inspire them to stay and not go overseas during the winter. And that will be really big to have the biggest names stay. At the same time, it will give other players up and down the roster a chance to earn not $250,000, but some amount of money to stay. And it incentivizes the league, you know, the WNBA and the NBA to actually increase the presence and the visibility of the WNBA, engage sponsors and fans, and increase media coverage during these long winter months when the WNBA is not actually in session. And all of this just helps boost the, um, grow the league in a way that we've been begging for it to be grown. There's also a big change makers platform, which is a way that um, Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner has started as a way to meaningfully kind of collaborate with corporate sponsors. So the first three that have been announced are AT&T, Deloitte, and Nike. And she's really looking for new ways to brand and promote the league during the season. And I mean, part of the only way this agreement can work without completely kind of collapsing the WNBA financially is if there is hard work put into branding and sponsorship and engaging corporate corporations and promoting the players. And that's good because that work has not been being done. And it it puts an impetus on that work to be done, which is going to help grow the league so much. And I'm so excited for that. There are a couple of things I don't fully understand yet. There's a Commissioner's Cup, which will be kind of an in mid-season tournament. I've got to be honest, I don't fully understand yet how that will work. I'm very excited to figure that out, though. But I don't know. I what, Shereen, what do you think? 
Well, I mean, I was really excited by it, particularly there's a couple of things here. Like when Neka Gumake was on Good Morning America, she also, which is where it was officially announced with Robin um, uh, Roberts, she actually said that she recognizes that women's hockey and women's soccer are both striving for something like this. And that is something that really st- stuck with me is that these athletes are so aware of like the larger picture and of the other athletes that are women that really are, are going for this. And that's the solidarity that I live for and that I was so appreciative of. I was on a panel on this past Thursday night in Ryerson University with Kyle Alexander, who plays for Chicago Sky. And she, we, we talked about it. We mentioned it. And, you know, it was really important. To, it, she said it was very exciting. We all congratulated her. And, I mean, she's fantastic. And, you know, she's very excited about this. But she also mentioned that this uh, the CBA is not just for the elite players. It's actually going to give opportunity and fairness and an and, and opportunity for players all across the board, be it like bench warmers or whatnot. And I think that's really important because we have a tendency to sometimes only think about the top level players. And, you know, it was, it was fantastic. I mean, everyone's very excited about it. And in the audience that night of the event, which went really well, I'm also part of the event where Brittany Donaldson, who's the assistant coach for the Raptors, the 2019 NBA champions, and then Dr. Jen Walter, the the first uh, NFL coach, who's a woman. And so everybody was pumped about it. And, you know, I think it's important to recognize that, that also in the audience, there was a hockey player formerly of the CWHL, and she got up and asked a question and said that, you know, we're looking to you and thank you for this because we hockey players who are in the middle of so much and trying, like the women's hockey landscape is so, it's so confusing right now in some regards. They're looking to the WNBA to be like this trailblazing, amazing organization that has figured that shit out. And so much, so I'm so excited about it. I'm actually very, very excited about this. So Brenda, do you have anything else that you want to add to this? I mean, I think I guess the message that it leaves me with, well, first, I'm just really encouraged about the maternity policies. And we've talked a lot about that on the show. And that's just like, it's really, really important. And I mean, most people think I'm an academic and I got this great maternity policy and I got eight weeks. And the eight weeks I got started when the baby was born. <laughs> so it's like I I literally lectured on a Friday and gave birth on Sunday. Which, you know, that just God. Right? Oh my God. I, I mean, and I was just terrified the entire time I was lecturing that I was gonna like my water was gonna break right there. I think the students were terrifying too. <laughs> So anyway, so I was just really encouraged because like I couldn't imagine being an athlete and having that job. Just like, I don't know. So the maternity policies were really encouraging. And for me, the message or the takeaway is about labor and athletes in labor, which is, you know, they are management no matter how much they may say we want this to grow together. We care about you. And no matter how much that may be true, they won't give you anything that you don't force them to. And that's like, that's just labor history. There's no giveaways. There's no freebies. They will never give you what you were, you are worth. Like you must demand it. And so I'm, it doesn't always work. And so it's so cool to me that they like took this big risk and it paid off. So I, I found it heartening. Yeah. It, to me, the biggest takeaways are this rising tide lives all boats. Like we talked about. I was even talking to basketball players who solely play in Europe, who don't play in the WNBA, have never been at that level. And they said this will be really good for them because 
a lot of them, you know, some players will choose now not to come to Europe, some WBA players. And that means that money can go to players who only play in Europe, right? So it's, you know, it just kind of keeps lifting up everybody. And as Brenda said, every single thing, collective bargaining is so important in every single industry. And especially for women's sports. And I got to say, I'm concerned by the fact that the NWSL doesn't have a collective bargaining agreement yet and is doesn't seem to be in a hurry to create one because they are still kind of buying this management line that if they take these steps, it's going to put the NWSL's future in jeopardy. Talk to Tori Huster, who's one of the representatives from the Players Association at the draft. And she reiterated that. Like she said, yeah, we're just not, we're, we just have a good working relationship with the management right now, but we're not in a hurry to do a actual CBA. And I just want to give you a little bit of history of the WNBA CBA before we go uh, to wrap this up to prove how, as Brenda said, every single thing was a fight. First of all, the WNBA launched in 1997, and when it launched, the league salaries ranged from 15000 to 62500 No contract guarantees, no group marketing license fees, no free agency, no maternity benefits, no revenue sharing, no year-round health care, nothing. This is from a conversation I had with Pam Wheeler, who was the executive director of the WNBA Players Association from 99 to 2014. And they, though, two years into the WBA's existence, they unionized and fought for a collective bargaining agreement. And there was a lot of fear that it was too much too soon and that they were rocking the boat and that they should be happy just to have a league in the United States to play for. But a lot of veteran players knew that that wasn't true, knew the importance of solidarity early on. And it's you know, we're only where we are today because they started then. It's taken each fight to like chip away at little bitty things. You know, that first contract, they got a 25000 minimum salary for rookies and 35000 for vets. They got a 401k. They got year-round um, health and dental and guaranteeing contracts if the player was active at least half of the season. So that was the first contract. The second contract, they finally got free agency, you know? So it's just, it's just so important to remember that like, you're not going to get everything at once. You're not going to get, you can't get all there all at one time. But this has been 24 years worth of fight from the players to get where we are today. <laughs> and I would urge other leagues to go ahead and get that fight started. <laughs> Next up, we have Jessica in a fantastic interview with ultra endurance cyclist Emily Chapel about what it's like to race a bike across Europe over two weeks, her mental health struggles, and why she decided to write it all down in her new book, Where There's a Will. I'm thrilled to be joined today on Burn It All Down by former London bike courier, who is now an ultra-endurance cyclist, Emily Chapel. In 2016, she won the Transcontinental, a 4,000-kilometer race, or for our American listeners, just under 2,500 miles, across Europe. She did the race solo and per the rules, unsupported. I'm going to read from the website for the race to get the description just right. Quote, riders plan, research, and navigate their own course and choose when, where, and if to rest. They will take only what they can carry and consume only what they find. It took Emily 13 days and 10 hours to do the race in 2016. The Transcon was started by Mike Hall, who became a good friend of Emily's. 
In 2017, Hall was killed, hit by a car while racing across Australia. Late last year, Emily's latest book, Where There's a Will, was published. In it, she tells the story of her first failed attempt at the Transcon in 2015 and in the victory race of 2016. But the book doesn't stop there. It then chronicles her friendship with Hall, his death, and the time after. It's a beautiful book, beautifully written. It's also at points hard to read because endurance cycling is physically and mentally grueling and Chapel does not hold back on details. So let me just read a quick quote, though this is just a taste and I chose a, a short one. Quote, my skin itched with the restless discomfort of sleep deprivation, with the encrusted salt of three days of sweat and with the pimples and insect bites that were beginning to pockmark my face. I dug my grimy fingers into my eye sockets and inspected the assortment of deceased insects that emerged. Oh, Emily, thank you for joining me today. <laughs> thank you for having me. You picked a really good bit there. I did. There was a longer one that I debated about reading, but I, I got it down to that one. So how, let's just start from how did you get into racing for 13 days straight? Like what's your origin story? Um, it's, it's quite a long one, really. I don't have a good story about, you know, I was always into cycling when I was a kid. I always dreamed of this. I wasn't a sporty kid at all. I got into cycling when I was in my mid twenties, uh, started out cycling to work. And then I fell in love with cycling very quickly. So from then on, it was just like, right, what's the next thing? What's the next big thing? So I was a bike messenger for a few years and I did a very long tour across Asia. It took me 18 months. And that, I think, those gave me some of the tools that I then took into racing, which was something I got into in 2015. I had never thought I would do that sort of thing. I never thought of myself as an athlete. I never thought I would be one of those apparently superhuman people who did these things. But it gradually... I started to admit to myself more and more that I wanted to do this and also to realize that because of the things I'd done, I had some of the skills and that kind of came together to, to get me into it. So I've just read this book where you lay out in detail, like I said, how incredibly difficult this thing is that you do. Like what draws you to this? Well, I guess it's more like, why do you do it again? <laughs> like why? You know what I mean? yeah. Like I get why. You would do it once, but like, why do you keep doing it? What draws you to that's, it? That's the question, really. And I ask myself that a lot. And I think that's partly why I wrote the book, to try and explain to myself. But there, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it. So you could go through the book, and if you were a glass half empty sort of person, you could pick out all the sections like the one you just read that talk about how mm -hmm. exhausting and disgusting and challenging and brutal it is. But much more of it was exciting and exhilarating and beautiful. I mean, Europe is such a beautiful continent and it's so varied and diverse. Like in one day of this race, you'd pass through quite a few different geographical zones. You'd cross mountain ranges, you'd pass through beautiful towns and villages, you'd eat amazing food, you'd see incredible landscapes. And that was that was worth it. Like I look back on the race in some ways as the best holiday I ever had. And then you're also, you're doing this thing that you turn out to be able to do and it's physically very demanding, but you do it. And there's a bit of a high from that of riding, you know, mm. maybe 200 miles a day and being able to do it and mostly to enjoy it. And that you get a bit of a buzz. And it's also bizarrely, it's a very, very simple way of living. So though it's very hard, uh, it's not easy, but it's simple. All you have to think about is keep going, keep going. That's your only priority. So everything else you do, you know, everything you eat, whenever you decide to sleep, whatever you do, it's just towards one goal. 
And I find it really hard after these races and challenges and things. You go back home and real life is way more messy and way less conclusive. Mm. You don't just have a single purpose. And honestly, I feel homesick for the race once I finish it because it's it's hard, but it's just this simple monolithic challenge. Wow. That was such a good answer. It doesn't make me want to go do it, <laughs> but I understand why you do. How do you remember the details of the races so well? I can't really remember yesterday. And then I was thinking my husband's a marathon runner and he once did this event with other friends where they went, they raced for 24 hours straight, but they were like taking short naps in the van kind of thing. Wow. He was almost like drunk when he got home, even though he wasn't like just the way he was acting, right? Mm -hmm. His brain was kind of not all there. So I, I just kept wondering, like, your book is like I said, it's just, it's beautiful. Your writing is beautiful. And so much of it, you feel like you're there with you. And I was just wondering, how do you remember all that? I think I might have quite a complicated answer to this. I've I've been asked this quite a bit and I've thought about it. So I've done races that were maybe 24 hours or something like that. And that's actually a lot harder because you're pushing harder. You're aiming to keep going for the full 24 hours and empty yourself out. And you're a bit mm. sleep deprived. So those ones are actually a bit more of a blur. During the transcontinental, one of the biggest challenges of the race, I think, and one of the assets of the stronger races is quite boringly, the ability just to look after yourself and keep yourself going at a level. So you're going to be exhausted and sleep deprived and borderline injured and permanently hungry. But if you let any of those get out of hand, it's all over. So you're keeping yourself at a steady level as much as you can, which means you're not actually pushing that hard most of the time. It's not about being strong and fast and going to your limit. It's about keeping going within your capacity. So you're not totally out of it. You've actually got to keep yourself switched on because you've also got to navigate and you know plan your rest and your food. So your brain is still working quite well. It's not like, it, you know, in some ways it's not like a race. It's like, a challenge is the best word I have to, I have to, hmm. I have for it. But also I think um, for me, when you're riding your bike for hours a day, I mean, I rode my bike for two weeks to, during the race. And during that time, I didn't, I didn't have any input. I didn't read anything. I didn't listen to any podcasts or news stories. All I had to entertain me was what was going on around me, which was quite a lot, and what was going on in my head. And I didn't get bored. I look back and I'm amazed by that. But I think part of it was I was riding along, taking everything in and processing it. And because I'm me, I was thinking, how would I put that into a sentence? And I'd spend the next two hours thinking, okay, how would I describe that bit of rock so that people could really see it? And once you know, you're doing that, you're thinking again, okay, now maybe change that word a bit. So it's as though you're, you're doing the first draft as you go along. And then I'd often get home, sit down and write things and it would all come out because I'd been embedding it in my head as uh, I think for me, cycling is part of the creative process. That is so interesting to me because I was going to bring this up later, but I'm going to transition to it now. You write a lot and you mentioned this before, but you write a lot about your mental health in the book and about depression that you get after the races are over. I was so I was struck by you win this big race and it's totally anticlimactic in your writing. I think that I don't know if that's the word you'd use to describe how you felt at the time, but you actually end that chapter by saying, I felt fractured, fragmented, doubtful. And so this is so interesting to me that you, I have depression. And one of the ways that I manage it is I just don't let my brain stew on anything ever. <laughs> like I'm always mm -hmm. listening to things. I'm taking things in. I'm not letting it sit still. And so listening to you talk about being on the race 
and just being in your head sounds terrifying to me. That actually almost sounds more terrifying than actually yeah. the, the physical part of it. Well, I think for me, the more terrifying bit is when I get home. Because when you're on the race, you're in your head, but your head's mostly a pretty good place. And mm. you've got a lot going on. You've got problems to solve, usually minor ones. Then when I get home after a race, That's I am... I'm exhausted. So all mm-hmm. I can do is sit in a chair. I can't go out on the bike to, you know, blow the cobwebs away or change my energy or anything. I can't really do very much. And that is when I sit and stew and think about what a terrible person I am and mm. all the rest of it. Why did you choose to be so frank about that in this book? It just seems like you're letting, you're being brutally honest here. I always have been, um, mm. I think. So the the first time I had a a period of post-trip depression was after my my big bike tour across Asia. And that, I think with that, I, I had a blog at the time and I, I went offline for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And then I came back and sort of confessed to people. And the reaction to that was predictably quite a big one. A lot of people got in touch, commented or got in touch privately. Quite a few people who I knew as, you know, famous, successful professional adventurers got in touch privately and said, I've never talked about this, but hey, me too this happens to me. It's Mm. awful. And I'm certainly not the first person to talk about it, but it made me realize this is something that you need to talk about. And it's important. It helps people and it helps people to identify, you know, with something that might be similar to what they're going through themselves. I think also just, I was, I wanted to tell the whole story of what it is to race like this. I wanted to bring in all of the joy and the excitement and the exhilaration and hopefully you read the book and you realize how much I love this and how happy it makes me. But there's also all of the, all of the terrible things. And I wanted to, to bring that in as well, to be honest about it. And you absolutely do get your joy. Like I will never forget the chapter about Albania where you set it up and you're like, I've heard this is a terrible place. And then by the end, you're like, I love this country. Like I, I will never forget it. Like it was, I, you can feel your joy in your writing. I did want to ask about the overall frame of the book, it would make sense almost for you to tell the story of the failure in 2015, not failure, but just the fact that you didn't finish in 2015, and then the victory of 2016 and kind of leave it there. But that is not at all where you leave it. There's this last section about your friendship with Mike, about his death, and then and then you're trying to cope with that and, and the time after that. And it ends on the transcontinental of 2017. Why that? Why that framing for this book? Why not just tell us about your victory lap? I think because I I didn't want to write a book that was just about me winning a race. That seemed quite egotistical and quite boring because a lot of books do have the narrative of, I started doing this, I tried, I failed, I triumphed in the end. And I think part of me just thought, I want to be original. I had, the book was in mind and in the planning stages before Mike died. And mm. I, you know, I talked about, about it with him. He was planning his own book. So I already knew then that me winning the race wouldn't be the final chapter. I think I wanted it to be at least three years. And, you know, the first one I fail, the second one I win, the third one, I don't know what will happen because mm. I wanted to put the victory in the middle. And then after Mike died, it all stopped for quite a long time. And I think I gave up on everything. And then I started to sort of settle down and get my head around things a bit more and think about the book again. And there was this moment where I realized that if I wrote about the, if I wrote the book, I was going to have to write about Mike and that that would probably be part three would be 
Mike and his death and how I cope with that and not really about racing at all. But I think one of the, in hindsight now, one of the reasons I couldn't have the victory at the end of the book is that winning the race was, as you've said, it was anticlimactic. It wasn't the final victory that I'd imagined. It was more of a kind of, okay, well, I've done that. That's an experience I've ticked off. I I know how that feels, but what am I really looking for? And I think if you, if you, I won't give away the ending. It's not a very exciting ending, but if you read the book, you realise that I find some things I'm looking for outside of racing. Yes. My last big question, it's not a focus of your book, but gender shows up here and there throughout. Ultra endurance cycling is mainly a bunch of men. I'm guessing a lot of white men. We learn about a handful of women riders and racers in your book as the community is small and these women are often both your inspiration or your competition or both. So I just wanted to ask you, in the years that you've been participating, has women's participation in the sport grown? How have you seen that community of women change while you've been in it? Oh, it has grown massively. This is one of the the happiest things about it. So five years ago, when I first got into this, I met I met Juliana Boring, who was mm-hmm. kind of you know the, the the big cheese at that point, <laughs> the only other woman I'd heard of who did this sort of thing. And she and I made friends. We went for a ride together at one point, and I was just I remember being so excited that I'd found another woman who wanted to do the kind of bike riding I did, like go on all night, go on for days have a really terrible time and keep riding and come out the other side. And it was amazing. And for a while, I had a friend who could do that. Now, everyone I know, pretty much, is a woman who does long distance. Every year, there are more. And over the last five years, I've watched people get into it, sign up for their first race, maybe not always have a very good time, Mm -hmm. maybe not always last very long in the race. But then, you know, go home, put themselves back together, enter more things and then go on to win races. And people are now setting up their own things, setting up their own races, setting up their own kind of training camps and get togethers and communities. And it's become this really wonderful scene with more and more people in it. And because I think we're all we all still feel like we're fairly new to it. So we're all about bringing more people in and saying, Mm. don't worry if you feel really stupid, because I did like two two years ago. I'm all right now. So, you know, come and make your stupid mistakes. We won't laugh at you and uh, give it two years and you'll probably have won the Transcon as well. That's great. It's been wonderful. You have that wonderful section of your book where you're struggling up. What what is the name of the mountain? You're struggling. Oh, Mont Ventoux. Yes, Mont Ventoux. And you're struggling up it. And the way you get through is you think about all the women who inspire you and you list them out and I was inspired <laughs> reading yeah. that. I would need a much longer mountain these days, I think. There are so many women who inspire me. That's spectacular. That's great. So last week on Twitter, you wrote, recording an audiobook is exhausting, which I this made me laugh when I saw it because I had just finished where there's a will and I was thinking, oh, that's what's exhausting. But that means there's going to be an audiobook, correct, for where there's a will? Yes, there is. Okay. There is. I don't know exactly when it will be out, but pretty soon, okay, I should think. Great. Well, I highly suggest that anyone interested in this at all should go get a copy. It's it's also just a beautiful book. Like if you just like en- enjoy beautiful writing, where on the internet can our listeners find you? I think the best place to look for me is probably on Twitter. So I am at Emily Chapel on Twitter. That's Chapel has two P's and two L's. Okay. You should be able to find me. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for being on Burn It All Down. It's a massive pleasure. Thank you for speaking to me. Lindsay, can you take us into our next segment, please? 
Yeah. So <laughs> this is a very important conversation to have. So first of all, this week in the Daily Beast, Sydney Bauer wrote a very important article about how 19 bills have been filed at 11 different state legislatures over the past two months, all introduced by Republican lawmakers, all targeting the transgender community. And in most of these bills, they specifically target to restrict the participation of transgender students in state sports competition. So this is what's going on on the grassroots level. We talked about this some with Martina Navratilova last year when she came forward and made some very transphobic comments. And those comments were then used by state legislatures to try and push bills like this forward. Martina said, oh, I was just talking about elite athletes. But, you know, the Republican lawmakers very conveniently didn't make that distinction. And Martina Navratilova really has never fully apologized or fully grappled with the damage that she caused uh, with those statements. And uh, unfortunately, this week we had another incident of a elite athlete spreading transphobic misinformation. So this was actually our badass woman of the week last week, Clarissa Shields. So this week, Shields amplified a story about a female boxer publicly alleging that another boxer, Alejandro Jimenez, was born a man. So just to break down what happened here, uh, Carlette Yule, made a very, who is a world champion boxer, made a very transphobic Facebook post baselessly claiming that Alejandra uh, Jimenez was born a man and saying that the World Boxing Commission was covering it up because they wanted her to have a marquee fight with Clarissa Shields and wanted to earn money from that. So Shields retweeted that article and said, quote, I don't know if this is true, but the, the WBC boxing doesn't even allow women to box three minute rounds. So why would they allow a man to change into a woman and box? Doesn't seem logical, but paperwork would be nice. Now, the WBC came out and publicly released and actually what was a very scathing letter directed at Yule shutting down these rumors. First of all, there is zero proof to these. What Jimenez is a she has a bigger frame, but she's actually lost like 80 pounds and all through boxing. So she has a little bit different of a build and she has short hair. And she's now being discriminated against, among other things. So she did, you know, give birth 10 years ago. She's a mother, too. So in a letter, WBC Boxing said, it's shameful and regrettable to read the irresponsible, defamatory, discriminatory, and untrue comments on social media concerning Alejandro Jimenez, our proud WBC super middleweight world champion. The individuals writing such rubbish and the organizations publishing it have zero moral integrity. So that it was at least they came out, you know, strongly against it. But Clarissa Shields did not apologize for her tweet spreading misinformation. All she did was oh say, my God. well, that clears it. Jimenez is a woman who gave birth 10 years ago. Thank you to the WBC boxing for clearing it up. But that does not do anything to take account for the fact that she was a spreading lies about another boxer and be spreading transphobic notions. And it was very disappointing for me to hear this from Shields. And I'm worried as we see these transphobic bills being pushed through quickly 
on the grassroots level to try and take sports away from trans youth and to use fear mongering to about protecting women, which is bullshit, to exclude, you know, youth participation in sports. I mean, our elite athletes who have this microphone need to be more careful than ever. And my fear is, and this is the reality, that they are drinking the misinformation, the transphobic Kool-Aid too, and spreading that incredibly irresponsibly. And there is no excuse for this from Clarissa Shields. Yeah, I will sort of echo what you're saying here. I tried to follow a little bit of what was happening, not just with this, but there's now this rift with Layla Ali. And I don't know if that's just for promotional purposes or boxing purposes, but there seems to be a lot of, you know, sort of back and forth and bizarre fighting and challenging and talking trash and all that stuff. But with getting back to this transphobic issue, I think I was so disappointed because Clarissa Shields is somebody who we've had on the show, like we've talked about her numerous times when she's won her belts. And to see this kind of thing was so bitterly disappointing because it's just the way that, you know, Alejandro treated was completely, completely unacceptable. And then saying that, you know, thank you for UBC to clearing it up. Why did they need to clear it up is my question. Like, why did this entire thing need to happen? And the fact that you don't walk back and say what I did was not okay. And I know there's absolutely a place for, and I appreciate women who are brash and bold and very confident, but when you cross into lines of discriminatory and transphobic and all kinds of issues, like that's where it stops for me. I'm I'm not struggling with this because it's very clear for me. Like I'm very, very disappointed in this and the way that it was handled and, 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 and quite frankly... I'm just very disappointed because Clarissa Shields is somebody that's reached out. I wrote an article about her and Amaya Zuffer from the Shadow League and how she mentors young women in boxing. And there's so much good that she does. But I'm like, you can't not acknowledge this. And I'm really glad we're talking about it. Brenda? Yeah, uh, Clarissa Shields was also very open about um, the sexual abuse that she suffered as a child. And there's no way not to see the vulnerability and the not admire the place from which she's come. But I am so bummed out about this. And and I mean, how can how can the very people that would be hurting, you know, trans people are the people who have hurt her? And it just like she's empowering the very people that abuse. So I just it is so sad. I know people are complicated. It's just it's a bummer for me for me too. I always loved the fact that she was from Flint. I loved, you know, seeing the happiness that it brought a place that, you know, was in the news for being basically poisoning its residents and then totally dropped off of the news and nothing's changed. And, you know, because they're poor and because they're black, they are being constantly um, discriminated against and denied basic rights and water. So, I mean, it's, I was so excited. So yeah, I just, I, that's very upsetting. I mean, her, her fighting with Ali has been a couple of years now, and I'm happy to talk about that if we want, but Ali hasn't necessarily come has she come forward in supporting Jimenez? No, her her discussion was, it was just, and she might have been fighting with Ali for a while, but this past week, all of it sort of erupted again. 
this is and, yeah. and like the back yeah. and forth on Instagram is like I actually messaged Lindsay and I'm like I need to mute her because I can't with this anymore and she went out and now she's saying that I'm going to challenge Leilali who's 42 to a, 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 a bout and 10 million for the winner and 5 million for the loser and et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's, it's a lot. And, I, but I do believe that like Leilaily sort of said, well, she couldn't, she couldn't beat me kind of thing. She did. She said even in 2017 yeah. and 18, she talked about the fact that there wasn't Olympics right. when she boxed. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> and uh, during her career, but I don't mind honestly is annoying the back and forth, but that just kind of boxing men's boxing and does that too. Like it's all about hyping up fight. You're, your, your self promoters, like, you know, one of the problems facing Shields right now is that, you know, she doesn't have a true rival. So, like, I get all that. But, yeah, no, it's it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> I still love Ali. I mean, I don't, I don't it's 24 um, yeah, I know oh, it's, I don't know. What all of this really says to me is that the, the activists, the reporters, people who are telling stories need to be so much more responsible and with how we are telling these stories, because they are reading this, you know what I mean? Elite athletes are reading this and they've been, they're susceptible to misinformation too. You know what I mean? They're susceptible to fear mongering too. You know, there's just so much education that still needs to be done around this topic. And unfortunately, so much of it is done and. I've been invited to conversations where it's treated as this hot, controversial topic. And I just so shut down that framing. It's not controversial topic. Like, this is not, that's not how to frame this. And the more we frame it that way, the more we give legitimacy to the other side that wants to keep trans youth out of sports and wants to call every woman that, you know, uh, doesn't look like, you know, our stereotypical woman, you know, a man, we are, what we're doing is we're in we're infusing hate and racism and homophobia and transphobia into women's sports. And my dream is that women's sports needs to be a place without all of that. And that's the, you know, that's the job that we need to keep working and keep doing. But ultimately, people like Clarissa Shields, people like Martina Navratilova, they're reading the headlines too. And they're susceptible to all this bullshit too. And so I just urge media to be careful who be careful what stories you give air to. Be careful what what when you weigh both sides equally. And remember during all this, in elite competitions like the IOC, even the NCAA, there are rules in place for transgender athletes already. And most people agree that those rules are pretty fair, you know, around testosterone. So it's not like all of this is unregulated. You know what I mean? There are, and when you get to the elite level, some some guidelines that are already in place. If you want to fight against those specific guidelines, then that's a different conversation to have. But most of this is not that. Most of this is just this man being a woman to take my trophies. And it's devastating. And what's it doing is young trans people are reading this and they are internalizing it and they are feeling like they are not welcome in sports and in society at large. And there is zero excuse for that. Moving on to our 
favorite part of the show, the burn pile. Bren, can you get us going, please? Yes, I'd love to. I'm burning the lack of organization, intelligence, and initiative of the men that run Brazilian domestic football clubs. It's not the first time that I've burned them, I'm sure, but it's and it probably won't be the last. But these men are unbelievable. Okay, so the attacker, maybe you've heard of her, Cristiani, one of the most prominent world women's soccer players. Uh, her mother is aging. And she wanted to go back to Brazil. We know that soccer for women in Brazil was legally banned between 1941 and 1981, that they've had a real uphill battle, that the only thing that's ever saved them is their own grit, determination, work, sacrifice, and an amazing pool of talent that Brazil is always going to have. She gave up contracts with PSG and Lyon and decided she had to move back to Brazil to be with her mom. And also, and I'll come back to this, she has just recently come out for the first time officially last year. So her partner is in the mix as well. Guess who can't find her a team? (laughs) Guess what guys didn't like decide that this was like the pickup of a lifetime at 34. Okay, fine. She's in amazing shape. This is the all-time most amazing scorer of the Olympic history with 14 goals. She also was the top scorer in the Copa America Femenina. She was third place for player FIFA player of the year several times. She is the all-time top scorer for the Copa Libertadores. Femenina and the Sudamericano Femenino. Anyway, it doesn't matter. She's freaking amazing and everybody knows it. And you're telling me you can't find her any team. No team. No job for you. No job for you. So it took months. It was back and forth. It was really confusing. This past Thursday, after a lot of mobilization and women journalists writing for independent outlets, of course, for no money, put enough pressure on them. Santos finally, the famed club of Pele, came forward and figured out that oh my gosh, they do have a place for Cristiani in their roster. I would just like to say, since she's only played 29 goals back in the Brazilian, or 29 games so far back in the Brazilian league, her average has been 1.5 goals per match. The ineptitude (laughs) of the people running it, that ineptitude, if that's really what it is, and not just straight out misogyny, is still sexist, and I want to burn it. Burn. 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 Jesus. (laughs) I'm going to go next. And I'm going to burn on, you know, while we're talking about women's football anyway, I'm going to just get right into this. This past week, Lucy Gillette of Crystal Palace, she is the goalkeeper, uh, said that she was subjected to sexist abuse during last week's, there's a champion game at Coventry United. So this is deep into England. And so apparently... This 25-year-old was standing in the net doing her job, and there's men in the crowd calling the referee and screaming out, check the gender. So, yeah, it's awful. Like, it's absolutely awful. And, I mean, I think one of the things that's always bothered me about this, this type of sexist abuse that's being vocalized and hurled, is that the goalkeeper is actually you know, it's not static, but is in one small area within the six yard. And it's very easy to taunt them. And it's so upsetting, particularly when they're saying stuff like this. And people will say, oh, you should, you should really, you know, just 
forget it. You should have thicker skin, but it doesn't work like that. Not with these levels of sexism and, and misogyny in sport. My problem with this, however, is that, you know, although the FA, uh, the Football Association has been aware and, you know, they have a spokesperson who said, blah, 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 we're committed to tackling everything, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia at every level, which is fine, and are, are leading an investigation. The problem that I actually had with this is that her reply kind of bothered me because she said there was a lot of verbally abusive comments, some directed at her directly and some at the whole team. But she actually said that, quote, if it was a racist comment, it wouldn't be tolerated. We've had players walk off the pitches for racist comments. Maybe I should have walked off the pitch for that match. Okay, hold up now. So I, d I think the idea that she thinks that racist comments wouldn't be tolerated. I don't know what league and sport mm. she's looking at because they are completely <laughs> tolerated. So my problem is, on the one hand, I hear you and I'm with you on standing against misogyny and sexism. But on the other hand, no, you don't get to compare sexism and racism if you're a white woman. You do not get to do that. And you know, when we talked about it in the previous segment about, you know, Lindsay saying there's a lot of learning that needs to be done. This is just one of those things. All systems of discrimination and oppression are wrong. They're not even, you can't be like, this is, you can say they're all wrong, but to say this would have been dealt with. No, racism has not actually been dealt with by the FA. In fact, they are absolutely horrible in dealing with it. So I, I am not really sure where she's going with that. Like I do still hate that this happened to her and it's not okay. And I want it to be done dealt with. But please, if you're the receiver of sexist and misogynist abuse, don't say it wouldn't have, it would have been dealt with much better because I've never seen where racism in football has been dealt with properly. So I'm going to burn not only the people heckling, but these systems and, and ways of dealing with it that are not, not great. So I'm going to burn all of that. Burn. 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 Linz. Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to burn this car alarm that is still going on. <laughs> and <laughs> I, like I said, my entire neighborhood, I'm sure, is about to start like throwing things. It's, it's, it's you know, 930 on a Sunday morning. So, uh, you know, apologies, listeners, literally nothing I can do. But, oh, God, I can't even think. <laughs> it's so annoying. Okay, I'd like to burn, though, keeping on the women's soccer bandwagon, the lack of coverage of the NWSL draft. So I was there. Um, there were a bunch of amazing reporters there, of course, doing great work. Meg Linhan from The Athletic did a phenomenal piece going behind the scenes with Sky Blue that you should read. Um, Steph Yang over at All for 11 did you know phenomenal work. Uh, Kim McCauley for SB Nation. Obviously, the Equalizer had everything covered. I'm not saying you couldn't get coverage, but the mainstream outlets had absolutely nothing. And they didn't send reporters there. There were zero ESPN reporters at the draft, zero Sports Illustrated reporters wow. at the draft. There were zero USA Today reporters at the draft, New York Times didn't have anything on the draft. They didn't even have anything on the draft after the Mallory Pugh trade, which brought Mallory Pugh to Jersey to the New York team. And there were no wire photos. You can't find a photo of the draft on AP images or on Getty images, which is where, you know, reporters go to get images when they're writing about these stories. A couple like SI and ESPN did have stories written from afar, but these are outlets that have very capable soccer reporters who a management should have sent to the draft itself. And it's just so infuriating because we're coming off this year where everyone 
was so eager to put Meg Rapino on the cover of their mm-hmm. magazines and the, on the cover of their give her awards and put her elevate her words and act like you know they were doing something great by doing that and they were but then they don't follow through they don't follow through and cover the sport in the day to day action and no you can't cover everything but this is the draft you can make time for this. <laughs> it's in Baltimore. It's not hard to get to. And it's got all the biggest stars of the future right there. In order to sustain women's soccer, there has got to be coverage of things mm-hmm. like the draft. And it's got to be prioritized. And it's just, you know, I'm just so sick of all of these, you know, big outlets doing all of these year of the women in sports things. And, you know, yes, women's soccer players are our people of the year. And they're really what they're doing is profiting off of their greatness, you know, by mm-hmm. spreading that stuff. And then they're not doing the work to, you know, sustain the sport. And I'm so over it. And I want to throw it on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. After all that burning, we're going to lift up some amazing, amazing people. I just wanted to say that this is so exciting. I wanted to mention the Spanish women's footballers have also reached their first collective bargaining agreement. So hurrah for that. Congrats to 90-year-old Barbara Buttrick, who in June will be inducted as the first female boxer into the International Boxing Hall of Fame. The 90-year-old legend has had the Miami Beach City Commission declare that January 15th shall be known as Barbara Buttrick Day. So that's excellent. Congrats to friend of the show and half of my favorite New York couple, Meg Linehan, for being awarded a 2019 Media Award by soccer United Soccer Coaches for her story in The Athletic. The U.S. Women's National Team beat Thailand 13-0 because you don't win a World Cups by playing nice. Uh, Megawitch to the strong warrior girls, Anishinaabe singers who performed the national anthem at the Winnipeg Jets game on Saturday night as a part of the Indigenous Culture Night in the NHL. And it was the first time the anthem was sung in Ojibwe for any major sports league. I'm Sophia Smith, the number one overall draft pick in the NWSL, was drafted by the Portland Thorns. Of course, we want to congratulate all the other draftees too, especially Kanya Plummer, who became the first player born in Jamaica to be drafted in the NWSL. She was selected 10th overall by the Orlando Pride. Holly Holm, Roxana Modeferi, and Sabina Mazo were all winners of the UFC 246. I also wanted to shout out Caitlin Nash and Natalie Corliss, the first female team to compete in World Cup doubles in Luge. So there are no women's singles and men's singles races on the World Cup Luge circuit, but there is no rule saying doubles teams must be composed of two men. So about a month ago, Nash and Corliss were able to actually race in that. And they've just won silver at the Youth Olympics, which are ongoing at the moment. So that's, that's pretty exciting. So can I get a drum roll, please? And our Badass Woman of the Week is Alicia Nacken, who has been appointed the first woman coach 
in Major League Baseball. This is extremely exciting. The Giants have made her part of their team and very, very excited for this. And, to, um, you know, for, congratulations to San Francisco. Manager Gabe Kaplan is confirmed. There was a lot of news about it. So she's actually the first time female coach in the majors. And she played softball at Sacramento State, and she's been with them ever since. This is just really, really, really exciting, and we're looking forward to seeing all the incredible waves that she makes. Now, what's good? Actually, that horn is actually growing on me. But anyways, Brenda, what is good in your world? Um, this past couple days have been amazing. So I went to Baltimore and spoke on behalf of FAIR to the Independent Supporters Council, which... She was fabulous. <laughs> which there's some hilarious pictures of me online catching that speech as I look just generally so annoyed under giant slides that say, what is a discriminatory act? So it's pretty funny. But getting to know the work, basically what this is, is for... All of the various soccer like leagues in the U.S., not just MLS or NWSL, but these other leagues like USL as well, there are these supporters groups that have grown up around them, much like European or Latin American soccer, and they do so much work in their community. They are super progressive and interesting, and they're independent from the club's front office, and that's part of like the charter of ISC. So coming from like Latin America and their Barras Bravas being so, you know, having a history of violence and even though women are changing that right now, misogyny, it was so refreshing and amazing to see supporters clubs that are just like awesome and progressive and doing community work. And I met a million wonderful people and I got to hang out with Lindsay, which was super fun. And um, that was really good. And I'm still kind of glowing from that. That is awesome. I love those selfies, by the way. They were great. So my birthday is on Wednesday, and I know that everybody has January 22nd written into their calendar. But I think that, you know, in addition to that, my birthday actually falls on the day of two of my kids have high school exams. So it's just going to be probably me and my youngest just hanging out. I'm going to go really wild and go to Panera. Because I get free coffee and pastry. And for those of you that do not know, Panera gives you free coffee and pastry on your birthday. I've been doing these like, yeah, five years running. You just have to get a membership card with them. And they're lovely. They love, they like really like celebrating people. It's wonderful. And I really do like their coffee. I do want to mention again, I was on this great panel for She's for Sports, an organization in Toronto. Inca Jess organized it. Inca, you're amazing. And thank you for all the work you put in. It was a really incredible panel to be a part of. It was featured like on the news and stuff and written about in like even the national paper, the Globe and Mail, one of them. And so that was really, it was really wonderful because there was a lot of really fun questions. I got to plug Burn It All Down constantly, which is what also I like to do. Also, I'm in Chicago this weekend, volleyball momming. Like I'm actually just going around momming everybody. At the panel, Kyla came in. Kyla Alexander plays for Chicago Sky and the Canadian National Women's Team. And she looked a little like under the weather. So I was like, you need a tea. You need a ginger tea. So she's like, yeah, I think I do. So I sent my son out, my eldest, and he ran and got her a tea. And that was great. So I'm just going around. I mean, even there's this guy at this restaurant in Chicago who looked a little under the weather and I was giving him cough drops. So I'm basically just moving through the world, momming everybody. And that's okay with me, y'all. It's totally okay. So yay for that. Linz. 
I first of all, what's great is that Shireen started out the show plugging our <laughs> vlog, which in case you are not don't speak Shireen is a vlog. Is, how, do you, how do you is it vlog or vlog? It's vlog, like I, blog. Just, I feel like that's vlog. so complicated. Okay, vlog. It, what it is uncomfortable to pronounce. I mean, to be fair, vlog is a yucky word. And vlog, vlog is, nice. is definitely no better. No, I like vlog. vlog. No, I disagree. I disagree. I like vlog. Anyways, just in case our listeners were taken aback by that, I just it is okay to laugh at Shireen for that. I'm giving everyone permission, or to take it up to start spreading but, it. Vlog, please don't spread vlog. I just don't I like it. Vlog. It just doesn't roll off my like Pakistani tongue. Uh, vlog, right? It doesn't work. Me neither. But. Okay. All right. Moving on, mom. Baltimore was great. Seeing Brenda was great. I agree. Meeting all these passionate supporters of the, you know, MLS and WSL teams was just so great. I, I met so many good people and who were doing such good work on the ground and building these communities very intentionally. And I love that. And it's so important. So I love Baltimore. Thank you for, um, we've got to meet some listeners of the show. I got to meet some power plays readers and just know to always come up and say hi, because it means the absolute world. Also good this week has been all this baseball drama. It's hysterical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I know it's actually really serious, but like the hysteria online and some of it has just been like the dissecting Jose Altuve's shirts, you know, (laughs) and the sleuthing, the trash cans. It's just all honestly, it's soap opera status times a billion and I am invested in the Australian Open start. So tennis, yay. I'm so excited about the Australian Open and you know, I don't have to be into an office every morning now. So I will be hopefully kind of able to see a little bit more of it than I usually am. So I'm so excited. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, bags. And what better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it. So go check out our Teespring store, teespring.com slash store slash burn it all down. Burn it all down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and tune in. We appreciate your reviews and feedback. So please subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram at burn it all down pod and on Twitter at burn it down pod. You can email us at burn it all down at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned. And as Brenda always says, burn on and not out.